the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. You could tell by my voice, I am not Dan Proft. My name is Julie Kelly. I'm a political columnist and contributor to American Greatness, online journal, amgreatness.com. And also way too active on Twitter, where you can find me at Julie underscore Kelly, too, with all the breaking news and calling out the people who need to be called out, such as journalists and our public health experts for the debacle that we find ourselves into in right now. Um, I have a really solid lineup of guests today. Hopefully you will learn a lot from them. I certainly have. We're going to talk to Dr. Scott Atlas, who was a close advisor to the president the last few months on coronavirus. Unfortunately, (laughs) we didn't have him at the top of the president's coronavirus team since the beginning. Otherwise, things would have looked very different. Dr. Atlas uh, has been outspoken about the consequences of the lockdowns. And he has been excoriated by the media, Democrats, and even his colleagues at Stanford University. So we are going to be talking with him. My friend Carter Page will be here. Carter Page, as you know, was targeted by the uh, Barack Obama's corrupt FBI, subjected to government surveillance in an attempt to spy on the Trump campaign and Donald Trump himself. Carter, after a four-year nightmare, nightmare, is suing not only top officials with Barack Obama's FBI and DOJ, but also media outlets who smeared him and attempted to destroy his reputation. So we will talk to Carter in a bit here, too. Representative Jim Banks, congressman from Indiana, will be here to talk about the breaking news last night that we learned uh, congressional leaders have reached a compromise on COVID stimulus relief bill. Um, There's some good news in there, semi-good news for Americans, but also a lot of giveaways to Democrat constituencies such as the teachers' unions and college campuses, which have basically been shut down or turned into police states over the last eight or nine months. So, But they are getting their just rewards for helping uh, the Joe Biden campaign. We will talk to Representative Banks as well. Uh, Ned Ryan will be here. Ned Ryan is uh, one of our contributors at amgreatness.com. Also a frequent guest on Tucker Carlson, and the president has just appointed Ned Ryan to the 1776 Commission, which is sort of the antidote to the 1619 Project. The president authorized the creation of this commission to uh, teach patriotism and American pride in public schools. So we'll talk to Ned a little bit about that. And another hero, we'll talk a little bit about 2020's many villains and a few heroes, Uh, One of the heroes is Chef Andrew Gruel out of uh, Los Angeles. He owns a restaurant, and he is a chef as well. 
But he has really uh, become uh, re- an outspoken opponent, very active against uh, L.A.'s indoor and outdoor dining ban, which, of course, has nothing to do with science. All of the data shows that restaurants and bars are among the least uh, dangerous vectors to spread coronavirus. Chef Gruel has organized other restaurant owners, also is attempting to raise money to support restaurant owners who have been shut down based on these unscientific rules. So we will talk to all of them and cover all the breaking news this week. Of course, it was another big weekend. We had threats of martial law, so Donald Trump could stay in the White House. We have more election lawsuits. Uh, We have the compromise on COVID relief. Uh, We have more lockdowns, especially in Europe, which looks uh, starting to look like a war zone. People trying to flee countries that are being locked down, reminiscent of what you saw around World War II. Also, a new strain of coronavirus. We knew this was coming. Of course, viruses mutate naturally. But in the U.K. and other countries, they've identified what they think is a more lethal version of coronavirus. So that's causing widespread panic. London has been ordered into a Tier 4 shutdown, which basically locks people in their homes, which is great because, you know, homes are not the top vector for coronavirus spread. Of course they are. Let's get into a little bit. We're going to talk quickly about some of the... uh, What was a great respite, though? Did anyone watch the PNC Championship this weekend? I hope you did because it was a golf tournament. It's sort of a father-son golf tournament. And the highlight, it was great. They had Lee Trevino and Gary Player there, some of the legends, Matt Kuchar, Justin Thomas, and his dad played. The highlight, of course, was Charlie Woods, the Cub, to Tiger Woods, the 11-year-old, as we know now, golf prodigy, was so great to watch. Um... What what a great, what a terrific pair they are. Um, Charlie Woods has so many of his dad's mannerisms. He has this beautiful swing, beautiful tempo, really smooth and easy, a nice little short game, uh, very attentive to his putting. He just had so many of his father's manneris- mannerisms. So it, even if you're not a golf enthusiast, it's fun to check out some of those clips. We are going to get to one of the more agitating stories over the weekend, which is that Deborah Burks, Dr. Deborah Burks, who is on the coronavirus task force, was caught violating her own advice about staying away from family, not traveling over Thanksgiving. We are going to listen really quick to what Dr. Burke said before Thanksgiving about people who wanted to see their family and share some turkey and stuffing. Here is what she said a few weeks ago. Really, if you want to have your cases go down, if you want to save your hospitals, if you want to ensure that Rhode Islanders live to get vaccinated, we all together need to change our behaviors. And it won't help if we can continue to gather indoors in our family, in our homes and defy these critical decreased gathering messages. So that was Deborah Burks before Thanksgiving, and apparently before she took off to one of her many homes in Delaware with her family in tow, two to three generations in tow, and they went to Delaware to, she said, winterize the house, a 50-hour trip back and forth. She lives in Washington, D.C., also owns a house in Potomac, Maryland. Deborah Burks, of course, has not suffered any of the consequences of her increasingly unscientific and punitive lockdown orders. 
But she was caught traveling, as I said, to Delaware. She's not really responding to media questions about what she did, except that she was did not technically have a Thanksgiving meal with her family. So I guess that absolves her of any uh, guilt there. We, uh, one person who was shocking to hear finally take a stand against these lockdowns, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a few months ago, uh, and this was just posted on social media this week, finally a Democrat is starting to stand up against this tyranny. Here's what our uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. said a few months ago. My father told me when I was a child, people in authority lie. And we all, if we are going to continue to live in a democracy, we need to understand that people in authority lie. People in authority will abuse every power that we relinquish to them. And right now we are giving them the power to micromanage every bit of our lives 24 hours a day. They're going to know where we are. They're going to know the money that we spend. They're going to have access to our children. They're going to have the right to compel unwanted medical interventions on us. We, you know, the Nazis did that in the camps in World War II. They tested vaccines on gypsies and Jews. And the world was so horrified after the war that we signed the Nuremberg Charter. And we all pledged when we do that. We would never again impose unwanted medical interventions on human beings without informed consent. And yet in two years, all of that conviction has suddenly disappeared. And people are walking around in mass where the science has not been explained to them. They are, they are doing what they're told. They are orchestrating, these, these government agencies are orchestrating obedience. And it is not democratic. It's not the product of democracy. It's the product of a pharmaceutical-driven biosecurity agenda that will enslave the entire human race and plunge us into a dystopian nightmare where the apocalyptical forces of ignorance and greed will be running our lives and ruining our children and destroying all the dreams and dignity that we hope to give to our children. Well, who would have thought that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. would emerge as a voice of reason, compassion, common sense, and sticking up for freedom and liberty across the world? Uh, Good for him. I applaud him. We would love to hear more like that. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show so we've been told since the beginning of this crisis back in february and march um, that all kinds of things that we are now finding out, mitigation strategies that didn't work, mitigation strategies that they told us not to use, such as face masks, that now they're telling us to use. There's a dirty little secret that a lot of us who have been following this issue and highly skeptical of the approaches to 
COVID-19, have known about for months and now is finally getting some overdue attention in the media, and that is how the use of ventilators early on in this crisis, especially in New York, actually killed people, which think about Andrew Cuomo getting awards, writing a book on the cover of Time Magazine or one of Time Magazine's Men of the Year, you know, women throwing themselves at him. No other governor in this, in this country has been more wrong or his decisions led to more heartbreak and death than Andrew Cuomo. We know that because of his uh, New York State Department of Health order at the end of March where they ordered infected nursing home uh, residents back into nursing homes where they infected people who were not sick. Um, unfortunately, he's not been held accountable for that, although he's getting some pushback from people uh, who have suffered, such as Janice Dean, who I believe lost both of her in-laws uh, thanks to Andrew Cuomo's uh, wrong-headed uh, and inhumane policy. Another uh, Another thing that did not work, not only didn't work, was not necessary, caused so much panic and actually also killed people, was the use of ventilators. So remember at the beginning, Donald Trump was criticized for not having enough ventilator supply in America. Uh, he instituted the Defense Protection Act and, and you know, car manufacturers were turned into ventilator manufacturers. We have this huge supply now. The Washington, uh, excuse me, the Wall Street Journal posted this article over the weekend. It's really a must read. Also, all the modelers. So, you know, the first few big models that came out, one from Imperial College, one from the University of Washington, the Gates Foundation funded uh, Institute for Health uh, uh, Metrics and Evaluation, came out with these models saying we were going to have huge shortages of ventilators. So threw everyone into a panic. Well, guess what? Now doctors are recognizing that the ventilator usage was not necessary and actually killed people. So here is what the uh, Wall Street Journal was reporting, that now doctors and healthcare workers are going back to a pre-pandemic approach to people who have dire respiratory infections, and that uh, now ventilators are, are not being recommended. Here's what they reported. Last spring, with less known about the disease, doctors often preemptively put patients on ventilators or gave powerful sedatives largely abandoned in recent years. So we're just going back to, what, the Stone Ages now with this virus. The aim was to save the seriously ill and protect hospital staff from COVID-19. Now hospital treatment for the most critically ill looks more like it did before the pandemic. Doctors hold off longer before place, placing patients on ventilators. Patients get less powerful sedatives, et cetera. Um, they are now, now with vaccines coming out, they think that they can, you know, rectify a lot of the wrongs that, that happened. Uh, one study of three New York City hospitals found the death rate for all COVID-19 patients dropped to 7.6% from 25.6% between March and August. Um, before the pandemic, about 30% to more than 40% of ventilator patients died. As the pandemic grew, hospitals in the U.S. reported death rates in some cases of about 50% for ventilated patients. Why they were putting people on ventilators was to protect doctors and nurses from becoming infected because they were told, as we all were, that these droplets 
and aerosols would immediately fill the air and infect everyone within um, proximity to this patient. One doctor said we were intubating sick patients very early, not for the patient's benefit, but in order to protect the epidemic and to save other patients, this doctor said. That felt awful. Ventilators can injure lungs by causing too much strain as machines force in the air. Not only that, they were keeping healthcare workers from checking on patients who were on ventilators, keeping them heavily sedated to prevent a patient from awakening and, of course, trying to pull out this tube, which is human uh, reflex to do so. That meant patients required more powerful sedatives to keep them from pulling out throat tubes. Sedation increases risk for delirium, and delirium increases the likelihood of long-term confusion and death. So that is the report in the Wall Street Journal. Yet again, another mitigation treatment strategy that has resulted in death and devastation, yet the people, remember we were all told, stay home, protect the doctors and the nurses. Now, it's hard to fault them because everyone was panicked at the time, but this had nothing to do with science and data. This had to do with panic and hysteria, and unfortunately, the very healthcare workers who we were trying to protect by staying home and shutting down our businesses also were protecting themselves by putting otherwise treatable people on ventilators and killing them. There's more, sorry, sorry to be Debbie Downer, but it's important that people have all the science and the facts as we continue to go as these lockdowns and coronavirus hysteria becomes worse. And this is now happening in Europe, especially in the UK. As I mentioned earlier, Boris Johnson has placed London and parts of outside of London on tier four, which basically is house arrest. And that's based on reports that the coronavirus is mutating and that they're not really sure how bad this is. Viruses do mutate. Um, So here, just as people are starting to feel more safe, a little bit more comfortable with the distribution of vaccines, now comes along a more possibly virulent strain, as we are told by the public health experts. Um, And so this was the reporting in the New York Times over the weekend The British variant has about 20 mutations, including several that affect how the virus lock onto human cells and infect them. These mutations may allow the variant to replicate and transmit more efficiently. This has propelled, I don't know if anyone saw the images over the weekend, but it's surreal to see this happening in the free world or what we thought was the free world. Londoners flocking to trains to get out of that city before the Tier 4 lockdowns went into effect there is some discussion that this lockdown will continue until April. Now, if you recall, last Easter was canceled, and we were told if everyone stayed out of the churches, if everyone stayed away from the Easter Bunny and you stayed at home and didn't see Grandma, we would be getting rid of this virus. Of course, another unscientific thing because that has never happened with the exception of a few viruses. So here are poor Londoners who thought they were doing the right thing following all the mitigation strategies, now trying to leave their homes, go somewhere else out into the countryside. Other countries are shutting down their borders to their brothers and sisters in the UK. So they are not put at risk, allegedly, of spreading this new mutated version of the virus. Like I said, we're going to be talking to Dr. Scott Atlas soon, who who 
has the most, one of the most rational, sound minds and compassion about what this all means. We will be talking to him shortly. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. With me next is someone I'm lucky to call a friend, Ned Ryan, who's the founder of the American Majority Pack. He is also a senior fellow for American Greatness which we're both associated with, a frequent guest on Tucker Carlson, all-around good guy. He's here to talk about a few issues. Ned, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Great to be with you, Julie. We are now starting to learn some of the details about the compromised coronavirus COVID relief stimulus bill. Um, It doesn't look like anyone is particularly happy. Well, I guess the teachers' unions and uh, the climate propaganda should be happy but not so sure about average Americans. What are you hearing about this bill, and what should we like, and what should we not like? (laughs) Probably not much to like about it, Julie, but I think if you're really paying attention and watching some of what's taking place in D.C. now, I think it should hopefully disabuse most of the American people about how this actually works. I say this to people all the time, actions authenticate beliefs. When you realize what has taken place this year, in which nobody in D.C., whether it's in Congress or congressional staff or inside the administrative state department, guess how many paychecks they've missed? Zero. Mm-hmm. They haven't missed a, They haven't missed one. Even if they were to hand out these little stimulus checks, I think somebody did the math. I think it's 25 cents an hour uh, is wow. what it would work out to be to the American people. So people should understand if you've doubted what some of us have been saying over the past however many years, the ruling class in D.C., of which I mean Republicans and Democrats, along with their crony capitalists, don't actually think, and they think it's kind of a laughable, naive idea, that the American system of government actually serves the American worker and American taxpayer. Oh, no, dear listener, you are actually seen as a little ATM to fund all of their stuff that benefits them, that benefits the ruling class, that benefits the administrative state, that benefits the crony capitalists, and whatever you're going to get will be crumbs off the table. And I tell people this, the the amazing part about this is the abuse that the American taxpayer and American worker have taken for years. That's why we had Donald Trump. Somebody actually stood up and said, this system is a joke. This doesn't benefit the American people. And people are still scratching their head years after, why, how on earth did Donald Trump win? Because he actually started talking about the issues in, uh, that the American worker and taxpayer found important and said, I'm actually going to promote your interests and not the interests of the swamp, the D.C. establishment. So I think the, the overarching picture in this whole ridiculousness that's taking place, please understand, they don't care about you. They only care about are you going to fund them through too many taxes to actually do what they want. And if you get any money in the, on the back end, it will be crumbs. So the system's completely broken. It's also really infuriating to see Republicans get behind this. It's hard to imagine why Mitch McConnell would agree to some of these giveaways, $82 billion at least for schools and colleges who you have kids, I have Indoctr- kids. Can I just say really quickly, not schools, indoctrination I'm centers. sorry. Just right. so we're clear on that front. <laughs> well said. I'm I just, sorry. No, I mean, this, Feeling charitable this holiday season. No, these, these are not – I. I you know, right. as we're going through this whole, we all, we all know there was fraud. 
right? This, this, this election was fraudulent. People are saying there's certain constitutional remedies, and I'm sitting here going, you're assuming that the American people even understand what the Constitution says as they've gone through indoctrination centers and not been taught to think critically. So you're going to try and spring some of this on them when they have absolutely no idea what you're talking about on any level. But this is the problem that we're experiencing, again, going back to this rigged system, where there have been a lot of things going very badly for decades, and now we're just thinking that somehow the American people will rise up and go, oh, you're right. This is completely unconstitutional what took place. They have no idea what that actually means. It's, sore, it, it's astonishing to watch our systems and our institution completely break down in real time, and that is what Donald Trump has I think brought to light. I think he's instant. I think he's agitated parts of it. But to your right. point, it has been happening for years, if not years. decades. Well, right? I, I I make the point even in my book. You know, restoring the republic. This has been going on since the progressives dropped an administrative state inside of our constitutional republic back in the early 1900s. So this has been building on some level for for about a century, mm-hmm. and it really feels like it's accelerating and telescoping. And the masquerade is finally over. And I hope that enough of the American people, again, they haven't been taught to think critically. A lot of them aren't fully aware of what's going on. You've got a fake media that's not a fake news media that's really not communicating the truth about what's taking place. So it's very hard for some people to actually understand if you're not trying to follow it in real time. What is going on? Wait, this doesn't seem right. Wait a minute. What's and so it's, it's one of those things where you find yourself where if you have been following it, like the masquerade is over, but the American people fully understand what is happening I think some do on a basic gut level, but they're not being given all the facts and truth of what is taking place. And then what the remedies are, what, how it should actually work, how our system of government was originally intended by the founders. And now we have you know, this, this administrative state governing philosophy with the veneer of the Constitutional Republic. After this quick break, I want to talk about who is accelerating this. And of course, it's Big tech, a sector that you've talked about and criticized extensively. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Don't stop me, don't stop me, don't stop me. Hey, hey, hey! The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Ned, you were just talking about your book that I believe it was re- was it released earlier this year or last year? It, it, it came out uh, December of 2019, but then obviously was doing promotion through you know in, into January of 2020. You have been an outspoken critic about big tech. Even I think made me think differently about it. I sort of a recovering neocon as I call myself. So the idea of breaking up. <laughs> or punishing big corporations is sort of against my grain that I've been taught. But I'm embracing this because especially after we see big tech's interference in the election, which was to suppress bad information about Hunter Biden, suppress information coming from the president, you have been really on the forefront of this. Why don't you talk about big tech's role in all of this and what this all this chaos that we're seeing in the country right now? That, that would take us probably an hour or two to fully discuss in, in enough detail. But, but you know, one of the points I made actually recently, last hit I was on with Tucker Carlson, is, you know, whenever I say these, these tech monopolies, and they are monopolies, uh, should be broken up, I get all these little libertarians, 
you know, freaking out. Mm-hmm. How dare you ask for government intervention into private corporations because free market and capitalism, blah, blah, blah. Listen, I'm all for innovation. I'm all for the free market, capitalistic, entrepreneurial approach. What a lot of people forget, Julie, is that one of the basic tenets of a free market, innovative, entrepreneurial approach is that you cannot have monopolies dominating a marketplace. You don't have a free market when you have monopolies. Therefore, because the DOJ's antitrust division was asleep at the wheel, you now have the Facebooks and the Googles and all of these dominating in such a way that they are now thinking they are the ones in control and in charge. And I, 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 I made this point multiple times in American Greatness on TV. How on earth did we get to the point where private corporations – who are, quite frankly, did not create the Internet. They do not own the Internet. Mm -hmm. They are squatters on the Internet. How do they get to decide how information flows, how speech works, etc.? And yet we've done that because the duly elected representatives of the American people, who in a constitutional republic, let's just say for argument's sake that we actually are truly fundamentally still operating as a constitutional republic, all power flows from the people to their elected representatives, who they make the stewards of the money and the powers given to them to advance the priorities and interests of the American people. They have completely failed us on this front because they've allowed these corporations to become monopolies and then to dominate the marketplace. And I tell people, being completely blunt about it all, Julie, that they've been bought off. A lot of conservative think tanks, and I'm saying this in air quotes, Mm -hmm. and a lot of our Republican leaders – are more than happy to receive direct financial contributions from these tech companies to kind of look the other way. Now we've gotten to the point where these corporations had a ton of power. You know, the point I made, one of my most recent pieces, I think my last piece, American Greatness, it is really starting to feel like a government of, by, and for the corporations Mm -hmm. in which the American people are an afterthought. Right. And where are the Democrats? I mean, where are the where are the Bernie Bros? They used to be the ones who were at least reliable about corporate overlords and the oligarchs of the Democratic and Republican Party. They've completely disappeared too. Have they been bought off? I mean, where where are these people we used to rely on to call would, this out? Not, yeah, yeah, you would not believe the amount of money that flows back in the D.C. area. On Matt, both, when you're talking both, about think tanks conservative i know who you have in mind if you want to name names go ahead oh yeah no no no. i've said this publicly on a lot of different places heritage uh aei cato i call them conservative inc uh julie in in that it's a it is a business it is a business proposition run of and for the benefit of conservative inc where people can have nice buildings big salaries uh but are they actually conservative i think there's strong question marks about that are they actually effective not in a million years so conservative Inc. And, and, and I've even said this, I, I think that these guys are collaborators with some of these tech, these tech, this tech oligarchy, because anybody that receives direct financial contributions from, say, Google has decided that they're not actually going to call them to account mm-hmm. and actually call them out and say, hey, that's not how this works. People have an inherent right to certain things. And now that the Internet has become what it is, a public forum, the, the Agora, modern day Agora forum. Uh, people have the right to actually communicate ideas, the free flow of information, et cetera. And money flows to both sides. Just so you know, like Google and Facebook, all these guys are passing out checks and gifts and financial mm-hmm. contributions to those on the right and the left. And all of a sudden, these people find themselves otherwise occupied or even worse, start coming out and saying, well, we shouldn't remove the Section 230 
from these uh, liability from these these companies. That wouldn't be free market capitalism. No, they have the right to exist. No, they don't. No. If you actually believe in free market capitalism and actually believe that the system is to benefit the American people, anybody with even just basic common sense that's not been bought off would say this doesn't work. This is not how it's supposed to work. We also have laws against corporations donating to political candidates, even in kind <laughs> contributions. Yet, Ned, how could we ever calculate what Google, Facebook, Twitter, and our big tech platforms did to rig this election in favor of Joe Biden and the Democrats? I don't think it's. I don't think we could put a price tag. I don't know on if it. you can. No, I don't think you can. I'll, I'll tell you, Julie. I was sitting there January of 2013. It was a post 2012 election. The Google Innovation Summit in New York City, and there are about 150 of us in the room, some from the right, some from the left. And I remember sitting there, and this was kind of the beginning. This was kind of the moment of epiphany when I realized, oh, my gosh, we have a serious problem. Because I realized at that point as Eric Schmidt of Google stands up and starts talking, oh, my gosh, these guys could totally rig national elections not only across the globe but here in this country because of the power that they will have on information that people will be able to see or not see what people will be able to understand about certain candidates, you know, throttling information about Hunter Biden, which we know for a fact right. 10% of Biden's voters in battleground states would not have voted for him if they'd actually known the truth, which would have been the difference. And then you start to calculate how much is this actually worth? Hundreds of millions? Billions? I mean, this, this is a massive in-kind contribution yep. to yes. the left. And it's something, if we are not careful, and I've told Trump and the White House and all these, if we are not careful... We will be ruled by a tech oligarchy, and it's not in the distant future. It's in the very near future. On that cheery note, Ned Ryan, thank you so much, but you're always ahead of the curve. Merry Christmas, everybody. Exactly. Check out Ned's happy news on amgreatness.com. Also, Ned was just appointed by the president to the 1776 Commission. Maybe we'll talk about that next time you are on. Uh, Thanks again, Ned. Thanks for coming on. You bet. danproftshow.com I want to pick up for a second on what uh, Ned Ryan was just talking about, and that is big tech's involvement, obviously, in every aspect of our life. Most of that is our fault. But what they did before the election, the few months before Election Day, as voting actually was ongoing, both in person and, of course, absentee ballots, was rigging the election in favor of Joe Biden and the Democrats. What they did was straight up election interference. It was achieved to the extent that the Russians or Chinese, any other foreign hostile interest who wanted to sway our 2020 presidential election, they could only dream about having this kind of power. In the months before Election Day, Twitter, Facebook, Google, other big tech platforms announced what they were calling election integrity policies. But it was specifically designed to suppress bad information about Joe Biden, especially about his son, Hunter Biden, and also to really censor the president and Republicans from expressing skepticism about absentee ballots voting, which we now know was legitimate because of all the widespread mishandling and really straight up illegalities uh, related to mail-in ballots. 
But here's the thing. Federal election law prohibits corporations from donating, contributing to political candidates. This means in-kind donations. And I, I wrote about this in October. And here is what the law says. Corporations organized by authority of any law of Congress are prohibited from making a contribution in connection with any election to any political office, including local, state, and federal, or in any connection with any primary election, political convention, or caucus. That is federal election law. Now, there are ways to get around it. A lot of corporations have political action committees, PACs. They can raise money and donate, but they have to list all of their donations to political candidates or to party organizations, say Republican Party, Democratic Party. They have to document that. We now have Google, Facebook, and Twitter, who even to this day are still censoring the president's tweets, not allowing people to retweet them, not allowing people to like them related to election fraud. It's impossible to calculate how much of that, of an in-kind contribution that was to Joe Biden and to the Democrats by suppressing, especially the New York Post, when they had the contents of Hunter laptops, Hunter Biden's laptop, which showed communication that proved his overseas racket using his name to get uh, money from Chinese, from China, from Russia, in addition to some of his other problems. Twitter actually shut down the New York Post uh, uh, Twitter account would not allow them to tweet, I believe it was for six to seven days, censored anyone who tried to share those articles. I know I tried myself a few times to share them. We couldn't. That news was suppressed. The public was not privy to it unless you were sort of on our side of the aisle. And now polling shows that there is this pretty impressive chunk of Democrats who said they were not aware of the Hunter Biden story maybe would not have voted for Joe Biden had they known about it. So good job, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey. You got what you wanted. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. With me now is Carter Page. I first uh, interviewed Carter, I think we're coming up on almost three years now. It was the spring of 2018, right after the Devin Nunes memo was released that told the world that contrary to what we had been informed, Christopher Steele was not a, um, was not a British spy. Um, the dossier was not British intelligence that all of this was political propaganda financed by the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign and shamefully used as evidence to support Jim Comey's FBI's accusation that Carter Page, who was working with the Trump campaign in the summer of 2016, was a Russian agent. They used the dossier and news articles as evidence. So I've been keeping in touch with Carter for the past two and a half years following his saga and um, now he has been completely vindicated after the media, Democrats, and never-Trumpers tried to really destroy his life. And so, Carter, thank you so much for being on today. It's great to be back with you, Julie. Thanks so much for having me. Carter, we, we could talk for hours. I know we've just got about <laughs> 20 minutes here, but what do you think 
about the fact that here now Bill Barr is leaving this week. He just gave a, a press conference today that with the exception of a relatively minor charge against Kevin Kleinsmith for altering an email that was related to you, that not one collusion, FISA-gate, spy-gate perp has been charged with anything. How does that make you feel? Because you really have been at the center of the storm now for four and a half years. Well, Julie, you have been at the center of trying to expose the corruption and really the crimes that were committed, not just against myself. I mean, and you're, uh, you know, you've, you've pinpointed this very well by realizing that, I mean, this is just a scheme to take out then-candidate Trump in, uh, during the 2016 election, uh, which continued into uh, President-elect Trump's transition period four years ago today and this month, and, you know, continued throughout, I mean, the FISA gate uh, scandal continued through throughout most of the first year of his administration, expiring in September of 2017. So it's it's truly extraordinary. In, in terms of your question, I mean, it's a um, I always and you know this from our, our many long conversations and the great interviews you've had. I always have kind of a long term view, and I I keep I remain optimistic and. I'm hopeful. I, I think the Kimberly Strassel uh, interview with um, now outgoing Attorney General Barr in the Wall Street Journal uh, a couple of days ago is pretty pretty illustrative of the um, you know a lot of the very tough challenges he had and the big steps that he took in terms of um, you know some major steps forward. And let me tell you it. I understand, having lived through all this, that it ain't easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, you know, there are there are prices to be paid. And you know, as, as you mentioned, with then Chairman Devin Nunes, I, again, we I remember I vividly remember the great reporting you did at the uh, you know right when the Nunes memo came out, right? Mm-hmm. And if you bear, you know, you 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 just. Look at him as a primary example. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy who's just exposing the truth. Here's a guy that's just trying to reform our justice system and get some basic level of integrity in the U.S. intelligence community. And, you know, you remember what happened throughout the weeks and months that followed that. He is just viciously attacked nonstop, not only from his uh, then ranking member, uh, a guy named Adam Schiff, uh, but guys like uh, Swalwell, you know, another member of the House Intelligence Committee, and and so many others, and so it's a heavy price to pay. And he just got uh, completely lambasted, not only with the members of Congress, the Democrats, but also with the mainstream media. I mean, he was one of the most viciously attacked people for just exposing the truth. So, you know, long answer to your question, but it is reflective of exactly what Attorney General Barr has been dealing with throughout his his entire tenure at Maine Justice there. Uh, and as he, you know, as he alluded to with Kim Strassel, you know, it's nothing uh, like what he um, did many decades ago when he was, you know, a, Attorney General for the first time. It just is a real reflection of the vicious culture that we live in right now.
It is. And I had Lee Smith on. Our mutual friend Lee Smith mm. was on yeah. Friday. And, of course, his book, The a Plot Against the President, which now has been turned into a movie. But what you're saying about Representative Nunes it's not just that they went after him, right? They went after his family. They targeted his wife. Mm-hmm. They they made calls to his grandmother, I believe, with ransom demands. I mean, and this was all Fusion GPS, the same people who have who have targeted you. So it is vicious. I mean, it is, it is really a great – these people take on a great deal of personal and family danger to go up against the system – but you were really the first target of it, and this started really back in, what, July of 2016 when the media started calling you. You started getting death threats. Talk a little bit um, for a minute here about what you personally have endured thanks to these corrupt uh, law enforcement, uh, bad actors in the media. I mean, there's so many, but talk about what you've been through. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Julie. And, and again, I, I think it's along the lines of what, what we were just talking about in a uh, strategic national standpoint as well. I, I have a similar philosophy. And I think it's, it's as Attorney General Barr stated uh, in his uh, Kim Strassel interview that, um, you know, I mean, he's at a stage in life where, you know, he's just going to do the right thing. and He's not going to get uh, sidetracked or challenged by, you know, the nonsense that's out there. And immediately, um, I saw this when I first started getting those calls from uh, some of Fusion GPS's Washington contacts uh, that uh, Glenn Simpson and his colleagues knew back in July of 2016. You know, I, I keep getting these same calls with these false allegations from reporter after reporter. First of all, it was the Wall Street Journal. And, of course, uh, Glenn Simpson and, uh, and some of his colleagues are from the Wall Street Journal. So that was the first call mm-hmm. I get. Right, I had to deny it to them. Then I get the uh, Washington Post and the New York Times, CNN, um, and, and a number of others with these same false allegations. <laughs> and then finally, uh, an, what he, uh, a guy who refers to himself as a quote-unquote old friend of uh, Glenn Simpson, a guy named Michael Isakoff, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, weren't, uh, they weren't able to uh, plant these, these false and defamatory stories in some of the more respected news agencies, such as uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, etc. So they ended up kind of going, you know, sec- second or third or fourth best to uh, um, Mr. Isakoff's news agency, the uh, Yahoo News, as it's mm-hmm. called. And so sure enough, uh, on that historic moment of September 23rd, 2016, they were able to you know, pump that out to the media. And even though it's a you know, smaller, uh, relatively less prestigious and less respected news outlet known as Yahoo News, um, you know, it still had a massive impact. And I was completely unknown until that moment. And it, it literally, um, you know, I, and I, I never tweeted in my life at that point. And, you know, all of a sudden people would call me and say, oh, your name is trending on Twitter. I didn't even know what, uh, you know, <laughs> what that meant. I, I could care less. You know, I was a, I was a policy guy, a finance guy. And, and I go from being a totally unknown person 
to, you know, an infamous public figure, uh, literally uh, within hours. And that whole weekend, it was one of the big stories on CNN, Jake Tapper. I mean, poor Kellyanne Conway gets asked these same questions as well. And I mean, it just created a terrible dilemma. And that was, again, you know, you look at it from a broader perspective as opposed to any personal ramifications for myself, because I, I bear in mind this terrible election interference campaign that was uh, that was committed against uh, then-candidate Trump, and it just did so much damage. After this quick break, I do want to zone in a little bit more in the media about these illegal FISA warrants and how you built yourself back after they tried to take you down. We'll talk about that in a minute. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Carter, you, I remember the first time I interviewed you, how gracious you were, how, and you remain gracious, and how a lot of your fighting back to the extent that you were able to even early on, you always were saying this was about the country, you know, restoring what was happening in the country. Because you're gracious, I am going to also name names. And those were Republicans, never Trump Republicans, who I write about in my book. In fact, I talk about you quite a bit in my book and how the never Trumpers also tried to denigrate you and discredit you in service of denigrating the president and sabotaging him. People like John McCain, um, who also went after Devin Nunes as well. Uh, Also, Republican congressmen, I thought, who were very ungracious towards you. One name that sticks out in my head right now is Trey Gowdy. Um, These people sort of mocking you and making you into a, a caricature. The cruelty that was associated It wasn't just like, we want to get to the bottom, find out if Carter Page is a Russian agent. It was was really childish. It was cruel. And you are owed apologies by a lot of people. I know you haven't gotten apologies. I'm thinking also people like David French, people at the National Review, other Never Trump outlets. So um, anyway, I write about that in my book, Disloyal Opposition. You also have a book out, Abuse and Power, How an Innocent American Was Framed in an Attempted Coup Against the President. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about, like we were saying, how these people went after you, what you talk about in your book, and, and how you built yourself back. And you are now viewed as just as an innocent victim uh, in, in this in this tragedy, really. Well, thanks so much, Julie. <laughs> you know, again, it's it's I think you're – your book, Disloyal Opposition, which I, I found to be very compelling and very optimistic in some ways, although it's a terrible tragedy for our country, mm-hmm. um, I, I think it really helps to expose some of the terrible things that were that were done um, by these people. I, and I think you you summed it up very correctly in terms of you know calling it childish. I mean, it's just 
shows well, a complete too, lack of sophistication. Yeah, You know, it, it's important for people to know. I know the Wall Street Journal and the Fusion people. The Fusion people were already smearing you in the spring of 2016. The very first article about you was in the Washington Free Beacon because Glenn Simpson was already – uh, working for never Trump Republicans to try to gin up this Russian collusion thing. And so it even sort of I, I remember my I have the headline in my head about um, how you were the first articles that came out about you really in March were from Republicans and quote unquote conservatives. Yeah, I know that it's it's really uh, it's I mean, it, it, it's a tribute to what I mean, it, you know, it shows a similar strength of character to what you've done in terms of you know, you. despite so many people having no uh, no commitment to the truth, um, you actually sort of explaining and exposing what happened, both in your book, uh, but also in your uh, continued writings, and, and really, you know, exposing this. And I've I've had many people in Washington often when we're debating uh, topics. They often say, "Oh, you got to read Julie Kelly's <laughs> latest piece because it really, uh, it really exposes things well." And it's, it's so true, but it's, it's difficult because it shows a, uh, you know, such a big headwind that you're up against. And when so many of these much larger, you know, same media organizations that we're, we were talking about earlier—Wall Street Journal, New York Times, CNN, uh, uh, Washington Post—the list goes on. Um, when they're, you know, spouting one narrative and you've got a uh, perhaps a less prominent voice, um, you know, telling the truth, it's, it's a real struggle. So uh, I'm greatly uh, appreciative of, uh, of everything you've done, um, as, as I know many people across the country, uh, a, a growing number of people have, uh, have been in terms of reading your, uh, your work at uh, American Greatness and well, it was, it, you know, I was honored to do it, and the handful of us who were trying to tell your story and and get to the bottom of it, you know, and it, so, how did you? I appreciate that, but I want you to tell people how much you had to fight back, how you got to where you are now, and what how you're hoping this awful chapter uh, really for you ends. This is, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about with Attorney General Barr, right? I mean, when he was first. Uh, um, went through his confirmation hearings, uh, you know, several years ago. I remember it back in that February, and it was, it was really not just so many bad actors. And you know, I, I think he too would have would have been hoping that things would have moved a little quicker. And I mean, it's it's amazing. Although we have through. Great, uh, great reporters, great analysts such as yourselves. Um, you know, um, there's just so much more that we need to get to the bottom of. So it's, I, I find it pretty amazing. I mean, even you know, back in our very first conversations in early 2018, when it was first getting exposed, I thought we, uh, you know, it was going to be a lot quicker in mm-hmm. terms of getting the full truth out there. And you know, again, drip by drip. We keep getting more and more, but you know, it, it just it takes patience, and it's it's a long, 
uh, ongoing battle. So, you know, you use the term fight back. You know, I, uh, I've been lucky to have, um, you know, great attorneys like Lynn Wood, and he, he runs the Fight Back Foundation, which has been helping uh, myself and, um, you know, other people who are, who have been, um, you know, suffered from great injustices. And so I've, uh, his Fight Back Foundation, I think, is, uh, has been terrific uh, in terms of helping to, um, you know, find some sense or some restoration of justice in my case. So, but it's, again, it's going to be a long, ongoing, divisive battle. So, I, uh, you know, it's, we'll see. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm fortunate that there are, you know, a small handful of people who are committed to restoring truth, justice, and, you know, our core constitutional principles in the United States, such as Lynn. Well said. And we know now that Bill Barr has appointed John Durham as a special counsel. He did that at the end of October. We just found out about it a few weeks ago. But in our last minute here, the one charge that uh, really Michael Horowitz, the inspector general, his report, which was released a year ago, that feels like 10 years ago, but it was (laughs) December 2018. And he's the one who discovered Kevin Kleinsmith, the FBI lawyer, had doctor had changed that email. You are testifying at his sentencing hearing, correct? Uh, it's scheduled. We'll see. They're still uh, going through various procedural questions right now okay. as to uh, those specifics. But it's scheduled for January, and we'll uh, we'll see how things play out. But I. Um, Well, Carter, a lot of us are waiting for justice, not just for the country, for Donald Trump, but also for you. So thank you so much for your continued fight. Good luck. People can pick up Carter's book by it on Amazon Abuse and Power, How an Innocent American Was Framed in an Attempted Coup Against the President. Get it for anyone who's interested in finding out how bad our government can be, but how patriots like Carter can fight back and restore their reputation and their life. So, Carter, thanks so much. Thank you so much, as always, uh, Julie. And you you keep fighting the good fight, as always, too. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. With me next is Representative James Banks, a congressman from Indiana. I met Representative Banks a few years ago, right after he was elected. He was on the Science House Science Committee, and I was covering a lot of what was going on there. And he is one of the hardest working members of Congress, really taking on a leadership role there, much needed leadership role there, and definitely someone to keep an eye out on the future maybe a future senator, governor, but uh, we definitely need him in the House right now. Representative Banks, thanks so much for coming on tonight. Well, thank you very much, Julie. It's great to be with you. And, um, you know, we've we've watched your career progress as well. I got to tell you, I recently stacked up every book that I've read this week, this this year in 2020. I always take a picture of them and post the list on my social media page. And uh, your book is at the top of a list of about 20 books that I read in 2020. It's a great book that I recommend to all of your listeners, and and I brag about it all the time because it's a very important book too for conservatives, 
to show where we are in this moment and the fight that we're up against in the future, too. So um, thanks for all that you do as well for the conservative movement. So kind. Thank you so much for reading the book and for promoting it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And we're going to keep we're going to remember who those guys are. Good. Never Good. We will, too. <laughs> Representative Banks, lots going on in Washington. Thanks so much for taking the time. What do you want to tell people about what's in this COVID um, stimulus bill, so to speak? What should people know about? What should people not be happy about? What happens after this? Well, I'll start with what I'm not happy about. Um, the, true to form, Speaker Pelosi uh, waited until the very last minute. By the way, we passed continuing resolutions since the beginning of the fiscal year, which started on October 1st. Um, those, uh, those CRs lasted for a month, for weeks. Uh, in recent weeks, it's been a day or two at a time to get up to this point to where we got today to pass this massive, the, the largest government spending bill in American history mm-hmm. is what this became, the omnibus bill, which was spun up and included uh, the next round of of, uh, COVID relief. But at the end of the day, this is the biggest spending deal in American history without a plan to pay for it that's going to saddle my kids and uh, the the future generations in America with even more deficits and an increase in national debt. That, by the way, Julie, started out closer to $20 trillion at the beginning of 2020. Hmm. It's going to be closer to $30 trillion when, when it's all said and done because of bills like this. But this biggest spending deal in American history, and it wasn't until just a few hours before we voted on it that uh, members of Congress were given a chance to even look at it. And it's so big that none of us could actually wade through it and read it. So whenever this happens, it's happened a number of times over the last four years, it happens under Republicans too, sort of um, leading, uh, taking advantage of of these types of crisis uh, uh, situations to sneak special interest issues and and uh, de- the the w- Democrat wish list items into massive spending deals. I, I don't think we know what's in this this uh, spending bill uh, because nobody's really had a chance to read it. We're going to find out in the days to come uh, just how bad it is and some of the issues that are included in it. That doesn't mean that all of it was bad. I mean, um, we did we did include some fixes for the Paycheck Protection Program and extend the PPP program. Uh, There were direct payments of $300 to uh, uh, individuals, uh, aid to those who are impacted the most by by the coronavirus, uh, more money for vaccinations and schools. I mean, all all of that is good, but the way it was all wrapped up together in a a massive deal really, really put a a deal together that I I couldn't in good conscience vote for it and go home and, and tell my constituents that I defied everything that I promised them that I would do when I I asked them to send me to Congress to be fiscally responsible and address the national debt. Well, good for you, um, because this is really alarming, not just the size and the scope of it, but we're talking about spending this kind of money that we don't have, trillions that we don't have at a time where our economy, major parts of our economy are still shut down the ramifications of these lockdowns in the next few years in terms of tax revenue is going to be devastated. I don't devastating. I don't think people really have a grasp on what that means. How how are we ever going to pay for this? And Representative Banks, there's going to be more to come, right? Joe Biden, if Joe Biden takes the White House, he's already promised another hundred billion dollar giveaway to the schools at least. Julie, I'm the first Republican to admit that Republicans have fallen flat on their face when we're when we're in charge when we have the majority. 
we don't do enough to address these issues. But it's not like Democrats have somehow found their light when it comes to uh, balancing the budget. I mean, they're they're as bad as Republicans have been. They're far worse. And, Can we and veto talk it. more about that on the flip side after this quick break? I want to talk about uh, what what you think the president should do and what we can expect more spending uh, from the Democrats next year. The more you'll know, this is this is the Dan Proft Show. Representative Banks, you were just talking about recommending that the president veto this. What is the likelihood that that is going to happen? And what other spending monstrosities can we expect in uh, 2021 with the Democratic House and possibly a Democratic president and also even a slim majority of Republicans in the Senate? There are plenty of squishy Senate Republicans who don't really put me uh, at ease that they're not going to play ball with the Democrats, too. Yeah, that, that's what I'm worried about, too, Julie. I mean, if we get down the road here in January, the the, the bill that, that passed the House um, today, this this massive omnibus bill, uh, will fund the government for the rest of the fiscal year. So the next time we'll have a fight like this will come um, before October 1st of, of 2021, when it's time to go through the appropriations process once again. Now, r- right now, we have better leverage with President Trump and the White House. So this, this deal could have been a lot worse if if uh, if a Democrat was in the White House, so that that's why, even as um, as bad as it is, it could I recognize that it could be a lot worse. And 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 there there are members like Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of the Treasury, who is negotiating on the president's behalf. But even in spite of that, I mean, there's still something about the way this deal came came about, um, a last minute deal where members of Congress weren't weren't allowed to see the text until just hours before they were expected, a few hours before they were expected to vote on it. All of that is reason enough for me and other conservatives to call on the president to veto it. When we get down the road and uh, potentially with with uh, with, a pre- with a Biden administration and a Speaker Pelosi and you know whether or not we have a Democrat or Republican-led Senate, it's going to get a lot worse when we get uh, into 2021. And that is a, really a frightening thought. Um, can we talk a little bit about the cyber attacks, uh, just to pivot to that, that is – we're still getting information about that. It just goes, to, you know, Representative Banks, so many people are losing faith in our institutions or our government to look out for us or protect us, um, that these institutions and agencies are just broken. They're either asleep at the switch or we're just not being told the truth. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening there and, uh, you know, how much are we at risk of these foreign hackers and our government? apparently not being able to either detect it or protect us from it. Yeah, it's a huge risk. I serve on the Armed Services Committee, as you know, and I have for both of my terms in Congress. And this is a this is a heightened threat that's only getting worse. I mean, what what we know at this point, we don't know. We don't know a lot. But what we do know is that probably was a Russian hack. It appears that our cybersecurity efforts at major agencies in the U.S. government aren't secure enough to prevent it. I mean, in this case, you had, this, you had the Department of State, uh, which was breached. Uh, we know the National Institute of Health was breached. So that means that these uh, foreign hackers probably have all of the uh, the secret contents or the, the uh, everything related to the 
COVID-19 vaccination, which is, as President Trump would say, all they have to do is ask him because he's going to share this with the rest of the world anyway. But it just goes to show that everything that we do in America, everything that we invest billions and trillions of dollars into um, as, as American taxpayers at a a place like the National Institute of Health isn't fully secure enough to stop a foreign breach like this. So on the Armed Services Committee, we we build uh, one bill uh, and pass it every year. It's the National Defense Authorization Act. And there are there are a number of efforts in the NDAA this year that would provide for greater resources towards cybersecurity. But but this attack, you know, really shows showcases to the American people that we, we aren't doing enough. And, um, and I, I would say too, Julie, because of Everything that we've been through, I mean, if from from impeachment to the shenanigans of of um, the last couple of months haggling over COVID uh, nineteen relief bills, yet yet Speaker Pelosi came out and said loud and clear that she prevented a COVID nineteen relief deal before election day because she wanted Donald Trump defeated, and now she's willing to negotiate uh, because Biden will be taking over the White House. I mean, she's telling us that she is guilty of doing exactly what they accused President Trump of doing when they impeached him, which is, um, which is astonishing. I mean, she's, she's saying that, uh, that, she, that, that, that she held relief to the American people hostage until, uh, uh, until a Democrat president was in the White House so that, she, so that she could negotiate with the Democrat president instead. All that to say, all of those shenanigans are what was taking all of the um, – all of the – the air out of the room when we should have been focused on issues like these instead to prevent foreign hacking, um, to address the, the China threat, which at this point Democrats have told us that they could care less about the greatest threat that we face in, in the country today, which is China, both economically and militarily. They do not care about that. I mean, the Democrats, they are the pro-China party who are not even willing to kick a member of the, the powerful a House Intelligence Committee off of the committee who's been uh, compromised by a Chinese communist spy. I mean, that this is all astonishing and uh, should be very troubling to the American people. We should be focused on uh, on these cybersecurity threats. We should be, be focused on the China threat. And instead, uh, Nancy Pelosi is very much focused on, on sticking her finger in the eye of a president who she hates uh, so much that she's willing to ignore all the issues that are really uh, more concerning uh, to the future of this country. You raise such good point and a, a kind of a, a frightening point, but it's something those of us who have been covering these issues the last few years, you know, I read these texts from Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, and you wonder, weren't you supposed to be protecting the country, like doing your job instead of this? But to your point, we have the most powerful law enforcement intelligence community apparatus in the world that instead of protecting the American people and our systems and our privacy, our security, they've turned and weaponized that power against the president of the United States. And that is something that should alarm all Americans. I mean, these are the issues that keep me awake at night. We're going to go for an administration that finally took that threat seriously to an administration who has deep, with, with, a, with a new president who has deep financial entanglements with the Chinese Communist mm-hmm. Party. His son, the, the corruption investigation into his son's um, uh, financial interests with the Chinese Communist Party. By, by the way, Julie, every single national security-related pick that Joe Biden has made for his administration has um, has a pro-China record. Many of them have fi- financial interest in China as well, and most of them have attacked President Trump for being tough on China. So we're going to make a complete 180-degree turn from a tough-on-China administration to the most pro-China 
administration that we've ever seen. Well, Representative Banks, I'm glad that we have you in Washington because there aren't a lot of Republicans to be uh, proud of or have faith in or trust. And you are one, you're definitely one of a few. So thank you so much for your hard work. I'm telling listeners out there, remember, if you haven't heard Representative Banks' names, you heard it here first because he is he's definitely a future star of the Republican Party. So thank you so much for being on today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Show.com. The Trump era has been so illuminating in so many ways, especially for someone like me who's been a lifelong Republican, worked in Republican politics, worked for a lot of good Republican candidates and office holders. But I think one of the most trust-shattering periods in American politics has been the past four or five years. And what Representative Banks of Indiana was just talking about, the idea that our law enforcement, intelligence, diplomatic corps has done nothing over the past four or five years but target Donald Trump, also try to target his supporters, his administration, his family members. Let's not forget what, as Hunter Biden skates free so far, with all of his overseas dealings, his raking in millions of dollars from hostile interests um, without any scrutiny in the media. Now he's under investigation. We'll see even where that goes. But, of course, Donald Trump Jr. was invest- was uh, interrogated several times, even subpoenaed by a Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee for a 20-minute meeting he had with a so-called Russian lawyer who, by the way, was working with Glenn Simpson, Fusion GPS, representing a Russian oligarch who was in trouble with the American government. So they were actually the Russian agents, not Don Jr., but they have targeted Donald Trump relentlessly and his family, his advisors, even innocent people like Carter Page um, to try to destroy him and take Donald Trump down. In the meantime, you had intelligence officials current and former, the law enforcement community, FBI, U.S. attorneys. You had especially, of course, um, also members of the State Department. Now we have public health. Any powerful agency, instead of protecting the American people, instead of looking out for the cyber attacks and infiltrating our agencies and making our information vulnerable and allowing hostile interests to have access to our private inf- information. Also, as Representative Banks was saying, even the information about the vaccines that were produced here in the United States. They are the ones, you know, they, they criticize Donald Trump all the time. He's the one that's undermining faith in our institutions. He is the uh, one who is undermining Uh, democracy and the rule of law, you know, all the tropes that these preening bureaucrats really on both sides of the aisle, to be fair. I mean, you had 50 intelligence officials write a letter, including top officials like John Brennan, saying that the Hunter Biden information was Russian propaganda and no one should print it. 
using their authority, their power. These are still people who have access to a lot of private information, by the way. Using that to protect Hunter Biden. In the meantime, protecting Hunter Biden, protecting Joe Biden, Joe Biden's brother, everyone involved in this racket, at the meantime, failing to protect the American people. We see this time and time again. And it is actually those people, not Donald Trump, who poses the biggest threat to our country. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. The Trump legal team is not yet getting giving up the fight. And I'll tell you, I was at various holiday events over the weekend, and my Republican friends, not necessarily political activists or anything, just Republicans, they the first question they give they pose to me is, do we have a chance? Is there any way that Donald Trump will be able to keep the White House because they all think that the election was stolen, was rigged, and, and definitely we know in many of these states there was widespread cheating and illegalities to back that up. So the Trump team not giving up. They filed a lawsuit Sunday, yesterday, see, uh, before the Supreme Court, looking to basically overturn three decisions made by the highly partisan uh, Democrat-majority Pennsylvania Supreme Court related to mail-in ballots, uh, one decision before the election, two afterwards. So we'll talk a little bit about that with my next guest, George Perry, who is a former federal and state prosecutor, a contributor to the American Spectator, and also blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. George, thanks so much for coming on. Glad to be with you. So I've written a lot about Pennsylvania, and I think, and I know that you've covered this too, if there was any state you could pick that should definitely have their election tossed out, and redone under strict surveillance by law enforcement, it would be the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, what's happened in Pennsylvania is really, it's, it's a crime, what's going on here. And the way it started was through collusive litigation between different so-called voters' rights groups and the Democrat administration, the governor and secretary of state, Pennsylvania, we're both Democrats. They settled the collusive lawsuits, and the appeals and the follow-up action by the Democrat majority Pennsylvania Supreme Court basically produced uh, some very uh, uh, distressing results. Number one, they extended the deadline for receiving ballots beyond that which had been set by the state legislature. They extended it for three days past the election day. Plus, they did away with signature verification on mail-in ballots, which means there was no way of knowing whether or not these mail-in ballots had been produced by actual voters. They were not permitted to even check and make comparisons. And you combine that with the midnight ballot dump Mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, where the ballots were processed out of the presence of Republican canvassers, and you had the perfect storm. And the result is Pennsylvania uh, is in the Biden column, but 
with for anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear who was here in Pennsylvania, I can tell you that the enthusiasm for Trump was off the charts. Mm-hmm. And there was no doubt in my mind and the minds of any anyone else who's been paying attention that Trump was going to win Pennsylvania in a landslide in the same manner that I believe he won the election mm-hmm. in a historical landslide. But here we are, and now that we have this application to the Supreme Court of the United States, which is really a follow-up on a series of lawsuits that have been brought uh, to challenge what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did in changing the rules for the election. And I think, too, George, one of the things that struck me in researching what was happening in Pennsylvania, their Secretary of State, Kathy Buchbar, is not elected. I mean, in most states, that's an elected position. She had been appointed by Democrat Governor Tom Wolf in 2019, yet here she is subverting the state legislature's election laws. Of course, the state legislature, like all of these swing states, the legislatures are run by Republicans. But here she was at the last minute changing the rules and, of course, endorsed by this uh, Democrat majority uh, Supreme Court. But to your point, George, there were other things that did have not added up in Pennsylvania. They lost two statewide uh, constitutional officers, one Republican who defeated the sitting Democrat state treasurer who was slated to run for governor or Senate in 2022. And I mean, he lost by 80,000 votes. It wasn't it wasn't even close. They lost the next one by 200,000 votes. Um, You know, Representative Mike Kelly, who, as you know, filed the lawsuit against uh, Act uh, 77, he he almost beat um, Connor Lamb. So there was a huge red wave in Pennsylvania. None of this makes sense. Um, but why, aside from, it, is it right for the Trump campaign to keep fighting, even if it doesn't overturn, say, the Electoral College numbers? But do you think that they're right to keep the focus on Pennsylvania right now? Yeah, they, they should keep fighting in Pennsylvania and everywhere else. I doubt that their salvation is going to be found in the Supreme Court of the United States, which I think is proven that it wants no part of resolving these election issues. Um, I mean, you talk about the lawsuit filed by Congressman Kelly. That was accepted by the Supreme Court for filing, and it scheduled the response by the uh, by Pennsylvania uh, for some time after the Electoral College meets. I mean, that's a clear signal that there is no way in the world the Supreme Court of the United States is going to step in to settle this problem. But where the Trump people can still win is if they can get enough people in the various state legislatures, Pennsylvania included, to recognize the obvious fact that the election was stolen. Now, whether or not they're going to be enough, because Pennsylvania has a Republican-controlled state legislature. The only issue here is whether or not there are going to be enough of those legislators with enough political courage to step forward and decertify the results coming out of Pennsylvania and then notify and and then endorse the alternative slate of Republican electors that has been put forth. Uh, That's where the real fight's going to be. But the Supreme Court of the United States has just washed its hands of the whole thing. And I doubt that this latest application by the Trump administration to, in effect, uh, bring up the same issues that have been raised in these previous lawsuits I doubt that it's going to really 
uh, go anywhere in the Supreme Court of the United States. I think of all the entities who have behaved badly in terms of this election, the court system has to be towards the top of the list because, to your point, George, everyone is passing the buck. Nobody wants, no judge or court is brave enough to really look, you know, hear this and, and litigate it. I mean, we didn't even get a decent explanation from the Supreme Court as to detailing why they would not consider the Texas lawsuit. Um, this is really setting up, don't you think, it? Or, don't you think? You're a lawyer. I'm not. A dangerous precedent yeah. for just a free-for-all in terms of elections, overseeing elections, in terms of who is registered to vote, in terms of flagrantly violating election law, which we saw in Pennsylvania and we saw in Wisconsin, which you weren't allowed to touch these ballots before Election Day. And we know that they were pre-canvassing them weeks before Election Day. Um, but the Supreme Court, to not even consider this and really codify this unlawful behavior, what does that say about future elections? Well, the the future is very bleak in this country because since they're, if they were able to do this, think about this, Trump won in a landslide. Mm-hmm. I mean, a massive victory. And they were able, through these mail-in ballots, and I believe through the manipulation of the Venezuelan voting machines and Venezuelan software that we use in our voting machines to manipulate the outcome so that despite his landslide victory, Trump is not going to win in the Electoral College. If they can get away with this, there's no stopping them. I mean, this may be the last election where we even had a chance in this country. So I think we're at an inflection point as a society. The Supreme Court doesn't want to step in. None of the courts want to step in because they don't want to be seen as putting their fingers on the scale on the electoral scales. Okay, I get that. Mm-hmm. And under ordinary circumstances, that might make a lot of sense. But what we've got now is a very, very dangerous situation in this country, not only in terms of future electoral fraud, which I think is almost guaranteed thanks to the success of the efforts by the Democrats in this current election, I think we're looking at a potential asymmetrical civil war in this country. I agree. And um, I I think that's why it's wise of the Trump campaign to put the pressure on the Supreme Court. I think they're listening to rank-and-file Republicans, even mild-mannered ones who I know who are saying things I never (laughs) would have imagined a few months ago. Um, But this is not going to end well. And, uh, you know, that's why it it's very important for our Republican lawmakers and leaders to step up to the plate and recognize what's at risk right here. So, George, thank you so much for your insight and, and for joining me here tonight. So nice to be with you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show so just talking to george perry about the court system and even our the supreme court who has behaved pretty cowardly very cowardly in relation to addressing provable election fraud in several states that undoubtedly 
rig the election in favor of Joe Biden and the court's refusal to even entertain legitimate lawsuits, including the Texas lawsuit, which I thought made, I'm not a lawyer, but made a very good case of how voters in other states, really our votes have been canceled out by the illegalities and unlawful uh, misconduct by election officials in several of these states. So the courts are punting, hiding, cowering in the in the corner. We'll see if they do anything with the Trump, the latest Trump lawsuit filed before the Supreme Court yesterday, um, seeking to uh, really uh, cancel out three Pennsylvania uh, Supreme Court rulings uh, against really the Republican voters of their state, not against Trump, against Republican voters. Another entity that has behaved cowardly and shamefully is our Justice Department. Talking about people who started the year as a hero, ended the year as not a hero would be, in my opinion, Attorney General William Barr, who has refused, even though he instructed his U.S. attorneys on November 9th to investigate all claims of election fraud and illegalities. About 20 days later, apparently all the U.S. attorneys in all of these uh, jurisdictions had time to investigate all of the fraud that was uh, being accused and, and claimed and I think uh, proved. And suddenly there there was no there there. So William Barr had a pre- held a press conference this morning about some unrelated uh, charges, but he was asked both about his office's failure to investigate or prosecute any election fraud, but also uh, a denial or refusal on his part to appoint a special counsel to look into Hunter Biden. We know that Bill Barr appointed a special counsel the end of October, while John Durham, who's been allegedly investigating FISAgate for about two years, um, now made him a special counsel. But William Barr, who is wrapping up his duties this week, Uh, answered a question about both election fraud and Hunter Biden. And here's what Bill Barr had to say. Do you believe there should be a special counsel appointed to investigate the allegations against Hunter Biden? The extent that uh, there's an investigation, I think that it's being handled responsibly and professionally uh, currently within the the department. And to this point, I have not seen a reason to appoint a special counsel, and I have no plan to do so before I leave. So that was the uh, special counsel. There's, he also said that he did not, his office did not see any systemic, I guess that's the word now, systemic, uh, widespread election fraud, and that his office really wouldn't be looking any more into that either. This is very disappointing coming from Bill Barr, a man who started his term in the spring of 2019, uh, really encouraged his friend Robert Mueller to wrap up his probe into imaginary Russian collusion. His report came up empty-handed on that score, as we all know. But Bilibar made a lot of, um, you know, noise about bringing, restoring some sense of integrity to the Justice Department that had been so weaponized and politicized, dangerously so, under the Obama administration and in early years of, of the Trump term. So to close out his tenure with only one minor charge against Um, a FBI lawyer for altering an email, Um, and also knowing what we know now, which is that Hunter Biden has been under investigation, but no one was really, it wasn't really confirmed. A few outlets did report it, but it wasn't major news. Now, this is all well and good for Bill Barr to say 
I don't see any need for a special counsel for Hunter Biden. The investigation is moving forward fine. He has no concerns about it, which is great, except for the fact that Hunter Biden's father is scheduled to take over the reins, essentially, of the Justice Department on January 20th. So there's no protections in place to keep this legitimate investigation, as Bill Barr describes it, going into his son, which, of course, a special counsel protection would enable and ensure that that those investigations into Hunter Biden continued, even as his even as pop, the big guy, took over the Oval Office. Very disappointing assessment from Bill Barr, who also it's known these investigations were underway during impeachment. Donald Trump asking in a phone call for Ukrainian officials to look into the Biden family for what they were doing. And now it seems like American law enforcement has been doing the exact same thing. But impeachment buried all of that, successfully buried it, kept it under wraps until um, a few weeks after the election. And then it was okay for CNN and the New York Times to start reporting that Hunter Biden was under investigation. But look, even more galling or as galling is the fact that Bill Barr uh, and his office has not been looking into election. Fraud is such a catch-all term. We know that these election officials, workers in these states, broke the law that their state legislatures had set. We talked to George Perry about Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania and Wisconsin violated their own laws in terms of looking at ballots, trying to cure ballots, keeping observers far away, in Pennsylvania's case, 15 to 20 feet away, using social distancing protocols, of course, set by the CDC, um, broke every law that the state legislature constitutionally set in place. And those, when you're talking about Wisconsin, you're talking about 10 electoral votes, wouldn't change the election, but 20,000 vote difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. In Pennsylvania, you're talking about 80,000 vote difference um, and 20 electoral votes. And we know for sure that what happened in Pennsylvania was just rife with fraud and cheating and deception and breaking the rules and the law. So it's it's sort of unbelievable that um, Bill Barr's and his U.S. attorneys uh, can't indict or charge one person. And during testimony... Uh, before the Senate, uh, Ron Johnson's committee last week, one of the lawyers, I believe he was a lawyer from Wisconsin on the Trump legal team, said, if no one is charged, I mean, we're even talking about low-level county election clerks who, for example, in Wisconsin, were filling in missing fields on certification envelopes. You had clerks in Milwaukee County who, if the address was missing for the uh, the witness for a mail-in ballot vote, if that address, part of that address was missing, they would just fill it in. You didn't know if it was right or not. Uh, and that violated Wisconsin state law, that if that address was missing, the ballot was spoiled. It was not to be counted. But you had election workers fixing this before they were officially supposed to be doing anything. But this lawyer said if no one is charged anywhere in these states, regardless of what's happening with the Dominion systems and all the problems with electronic mailing, uh, electronic voting, the absentee mail-in votes that doubled from 2016 to 2020. This is going to become the all of our universal way of voting. It will be a complete free-for-all. 
all of these election workers, all of these Democratic officials and politicians in these states are going to be allowed to break the law. No one will be accountable, and we won't have a legitimate nationwide election ever again. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. As you are aware, especially if you live in a lockdown state, uh, which I do, Illinois, a lot of these states... For some reason, I don't know why they started targeting restaurants and bars. I do think there's a sociopathic uh, edge to a lot of these governors. They really don't want people to, like, go out and socialize and have fun, and and they don't want that. So for some reason, they chose restaurants and bars early on to target. Um, We now know that the science never supported it, but now we have hard data that shows that it doesn't. And there are a few restaurants in these states who are stepping up restaurant owners, and one is Chef Andrew Gruel in Southern California. I started following him on Twitter. I don't necessarily advise it because the photos that he puts up of his food um, make you starving and make you want to splurge because they're amazing. But he's taking on the indoor-outdoor dining ban in California and and is becoming uh, sort of a rock star taking on this fight. So, Chef, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So how did you get here? How What what made you take on the California, really the entire country, but take on this unscientific and really punishing punitive orders to shut down restaurants and bars? Well, I think it's important to give some context and mention that I've always been skeptical of nuisance policies since day one, right? And I've kept my mouth shut, you know, in the restaurant industry. It uh, We definitely have to remain silent, if you will, for fear of cancellation. So I've just played along by the rules. And then when coronavirus hit, you know, it was uh, obviously we were all in this, right? Yeah, to use the cliche, we were in it together 15 days to slow the spread. We tried to do everything that we could in order to assist. We were the right the minute that it hit, we gave, we opened up and gave all, you know, first responders, police, fire, EMT, doctors. Heck, if you had scrubs, we gave everybody free meals. Mm-hmm. We did everything we could to be a part of the community. And then we ultimately kept trying to get ahead of the science, right? So putting up the plexiglass, spending thousands of dollars there, you know, really kind of COVID-proofing our restaurant and doing everything we could to follow the order, stay ahead of the science, but still continue to support our businesses and set a leading example for all the restaurants in the community. But then it started to get really weird around 4th of July-ish when Newsom started shutting down beaches only in Orange County, which was you know traditionally a Republican area, and it started to really reek of politics. So my skepticism ultimately led towards our, um, you know, defiance, if you will, of his most recent order, which shut down outdoor dining. And we, uh, we, we just can't go along with that, especially when there's no evidence showing that outdoor dining is leading towards any spike in coronavirus cases. So how are you, and you're right, I think that people started to recognize none of this matched with science, that, that these governors were punishing their political foes. But look, I talked to the, uh, one of the officials at the National Restaurant Association. You're talking about um, tens of thousands of restaurants that have shut down permanently. Who knows how many jobs that have been gone 
forever. Um, and even the fear mongering, the restaurants that do stay open, uh, defying some of these bans, even in open states like Florida, people are still sort of paranoid about about um, going to restaurants. So how are you marshalling all your forces and, and what is what's the response been? Well, that's so that's a great point. And I'll quickly I will throw out some numbers in California. There's one point four million restaurant workers right now. There's one billion on, on either unemployed mm-hmm. or um, are going towards unemployment. So, I mean, that's pure devastation. Right. Yes. And then the effect that all of this conversation nationally has on the consumer mindset, regardless of what the regulations are, it crushes sales. So we are open in various states across the United States. And then I've obviously got contemporaries in a lot of these states. So even in states where things are 100 percent open, there's still the fact that the mindset has been crushed. Nobody's using their disposable income. Plus, a lot of people don't have disposable income. So it's hurting the industry as a whole. And you're right. Restaurants have been vilified as the places where the spread occurs. And the irony is, is that even when the governors show the data, they they're putting numbers up on a screen in front of millions of people saying, 1.43%, 1.43%, for example, in New York is where where the spread is within restaurants as opposed to, you know, 80% in how home, homes and much higher numbers in government offices, but yet we all just blindly follow that. Um, so I think that the consumers, both, both sides of the aisle, are starting to understand that maybe we can take on these risks and restaurants aren't as bad as we thought they were. So when we opened up outdoor dining, our sales, right, and when we were, quote, defying the order, our sales increased 300%. We got so much support from the ground. We have people driving hours saying we're coming because of, you know, you're standing up and we really want to support you. And plus, we want to be able to continue dining outdoors. Uh, After this quick break, I want to talk about how you are also trying to help these restaurant owners and employees who are out of work. I know you've got sort of a a fund started. So uh, I'd like to talk about that. Um, But also, how in the world do we ever work our way back to some sense of normalcy? You pointed out the 1.5-ish percent related to restaurants and bars. There's another Swiss Swiss study that says the same, Um, but the fear is so ingrained. So I'd like to get your advice on that in just a minute. Another thing um, I think people don't realize is the downstream effect of restaurants being closed. I mean, the entire food supply, you have vendors who rely on especially, you know, sort of boutique vendors or, uh, you know, if they're producing local ingredients, they rely on restaurants to buy that. So this has a whole downstream effect, not just people are just thinking, oh, that restaurant or bar is shut down. So what? Uh, it has it has other uh, consequences as well. Overall, in California, you've got this recall for the governor. Um, so where where does that stand right now? And are you hearing even from Californians who may not really necessarily agree or be on our side of the political aisle, or mine anyway, uh, that, that they are recognizing something is desperately wrong here? Yeah, and I think that there's been a, there's been a certain tipping point that's been reached over the past few weeks. And I personally, um, I believe it is a result of this outdoor dining ban. Because what happens is when you drive around California, right, let's take Huntington Beach, for example. You go down Beach Boulevard. It's the main artery that takes you from the highway all the way down to the beach. You're passing, you know, every McDonald's. It's like chain heaven before you kind of get close to the water. And 
when you get maybe I don't know a quarter mile from the beach, there's a huge Walmart right on the side of the on the side of the road. It is a four lane main intersection, and the Walmart is constantly spilling out with cars. Right, there's just lines and lines of cars. I mean, you'd think that the Walmart was giving away free in and out burgers, and there are people walking around. They're on top of each other, virtually tailgating in there. You go into the Walmart, which I've done before, and nobody's wearing masks. I mean, if they are, you know, they're around their chin, and then in the lines, it's 50, 75 people deep. And then you go 600 meters down the road, and all the restaurants are shut down. So I think that you can visually see this hypocrisy now as opposed to just hearing about it. And you got to understand, in California, or really anywhere for that matter, the media is completely running a cover game for any of these Democratic politicians. You know, they're covering up every single thing they do and spinning it as much as they can. So the propaganda arm of what's going on right now is bigger than anybody can even wrap their arms and their mind around. But now that they see it, I think it's, okay, this just doesn't seem to make sense. Everybody now has a friend. They have somebody even in their family who's being affected by these shutdowns where they're losing their income. So this has become a bipartisan issue, and I frankly believe the 1.5 million um, signature threshold will be reached pretty soon here in terms of the recall Gavin Newsom push. And the COVID relief package, I put relief in quotations, here you have politicians of both political parties. I mean, there are Republican governors who are shutting down their states, too, and decimating the hospitality industry. How... How do you receive the news uh, about the $900 billion uh, payoff for certain political constituencies who have done their job but basically leaving everybody else empty-handed? Well, and that's what it is, right? So first, firstly, in an unprecedented situation like this, to watch all the money that's being now printed, which is clearly going to affect generations ahead – go through and become and be distilled through these bloated government agencies, it's all just going to get soaked up into the, you know, into the system, right? Um, so the last minute, of course, they throw on these, these direct payments to people, which really all that is is a, is a punctuated slap in the face because who, nobody in government has not gotten a paycheck or mm-hmm. lost their jobs, and then everybody kind of has to jump on top of $600 payments, which I guarantee you will end up paying income tax on. But specifically for the restaurant industry, they allocated something along the lines of like $150 billion. And that's supposed to take form in the um, through this employee retention credit program. That was the alternate to the PPP program, which was a complete and utter disaster. We saw only favored a lot of big business corporations and big banks. Well, the employee retention credit program People need to understand that's not relief for restaurants. You have to be alive and then, you know, as a restaurant, mm-hmm. and you have to be paying employees, whereby then you go file this Form 7200, which is a rebate on the payroll taxes that you paid, okay? So they allocate this money. Firstly, most people don't have the wherewithal to go file these forms. Number two, we used the employee retention credit in the beginning. I filed our 7200s in April. We still haven't gotten a single dollar. Oh, so geez. you need the money to begin with to be open wow. and operating and hiring employees, and then it takes months to even get any of that money. So you know this big, this big, um, you know price tag on the recent relief program. When you actually get into the granular, you'll find that all that it does is help each other, help out each other's cronies. It's corporatism at its best. And there's going to be more to come. I mean, the government could not have messed this up any worse, right? I mean, they just they couldn't have made worse decisions, couldn't have mishandled this. Um, but there's a lot more devastation to come. We're just scratching the surface now of what this decimated hospitality industry, uh, decimated uh, property tax, real estate sales tax base is going to do to a lot of these areas, especially in your state. Um, and who's going to be caught left? Who's going to be caught left trying to 
compensate for all of this? Well, it's going to be years, if ever, that we get this resolved. But I know you also um, are trying to help out restaurant owners, especially during the holidays. You know, they're shut down again and are continuing to be shut down. But can you talk just in our last few minutes here about how you are trying to encourage people, how people can help out uh, restaurant workers and owners who are who are being shut down by their own government? Certainly, and thank you so much for the microphone on that. We started a fund right now. It's called 86 Restaurant Struggle, and 86 in the restaurant industry is when you're out of something. So, you know, let's be out of struggle as opposed to to burgers. Um, So what we're doing is we are raising money just to actually distribute to struggling restaurant workers directly, Um, um, whether they've lost their job or they've lost all their hours. The communication that we're getting from people is depressing. You know, I can't feed my kids. These are all mothers, fathers. These aren't kids sitting in their basement who are trying to get beer money. Mm-hmm. And so what we're doing is we're raising this money and we're trying to give people uh, distributions and denominations of five, six hundred dollars even just to give them a little bit of a leg up so they can bridge forward. Because most of these people lost their jobs with absolutely no notice as us restaurants got these decrees unilaterally thrown down on us. Um, so that's what we're doing to help. We've raised over fifty thousand dollars already. It's been unbelievable to support. And we're going to continue trying to pivot in various ways where we can be a leader within the industry to help others. Well, I appreciate it. I, uh, you know, we we go out a lot. I I thought about so many of our local restaurant owners during the initial shutdown, hoping that they would be able to survive. Um, and so I appreciate all the hard work that you are doing, your advocacy, because it's not easy. Because people will call you all kinds of names, think that you're heartless, you want to kill grandma, you're greedy, capitalist, etc. But yep. really, what you're doing is speaking for millions of people who are out of work. Um, So, Chef, thank you. You can find Chef Gruel. If you're looking for food porn, too, I'm telling you, you put some stuff up there, and I'm like, oh, I want that right now. But it's um, at Chef Gruel, G-R-U-E-L, on Twitter, uh, and you can mix up all the delicious things that he's preparing and also the fight that he's taking on. Thank you so much, Chef. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. I know. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Well, it's hard to believe that Christmas is only a few days away. Certainly doesn't feel like it. Um, Shopping, all of the usual traditions kind of uh, gone by the wayside this year. People aren't really planning to see, especially older parents because of coronavirus. So just like everything else in 2020, looking to be spoiled. But the good news is that Dr. Anthony Fauci continues to leverage, exploit kids, use Santa Claus, everything else to scare our children about vaccines and coronavirus. And he earlier said Christmas should be canceled. He backtracked on that. Um, But now he is claiming that he has vaccinated Santa Claus and he's good to go, according to uh, Dr. Santa Anthony Fauci. Will Santa still be able to visit me in coronavirus season? What if he can't go to anyone's house or near his reindeer? Well, I have to say I took care of that for you because I was worried that you'd all be upset. So what I did a little while ago, I took a trip up there to the North Pole 
I went there and I vaccinated Santa Claus myself. I measured his level of immunity and he is good to go. He can come down the chimney. He can leave the presence. He can leave and you have nothing to worry about. Santa Claus is good to go. Dr. Fauci, you've made so many kids around <laughs> the world so happy just now. Well, Gross. I, I'm sorry. And to have the CNN anchors just swoon over Fauci, believing that he has saved Christmas for millions of children while using these poor kids as props um, and promoting, which is fine, to pr- promote vaccines. The problem is, well, r- the real tragedy is that we are developing a generation of children, young children, whose every experience now is colored by the presence of a virus that poses no threat to them, that they don't spread to others. Their schools have been closed, especially older kids. Graduation ceremonies gone. Um, Every sort of rite of passage from the time you're in grade school all the way up through college graduation has been destroyed because of Anthony Fauci. But yet here he is. He's cheerful, right? He's happy. He's jolly because he's getting all sorts of attention and you know, attaboys from CNN anchors and the public health experts who think he is just emerging as the hero of the year. Meanwhile, we have little kids. I mean, this person, this little guy who called in, he's probably five or six years old. You know, he's been wearing a mask everywhere all year. He hasn't been in school. Um, You know, all the fun has been taken, stripped away from his life. But uh, we can't can't let uh, Dr. Fauci get away with uh, without inserting himself in you know what is supposed to be a time of celebration of reflection of uh, being with our families celebrating our religion and there he is stepping all over it once again that's it for uh, the Dan Prof show this evening I'm Julie Kelly thanks so much for tuning in tonight and have a great week This is the Dan Proft Show.